This is an ABC podcast. Across cultures, continents and eras, families have always featured in visual art. And it makes total sense because they influence us in so many significant ways, particularly when it comes to the matriarchy. Whether it's shaping our outlook, perspectives, experiences and even our creativity. Today on The Art Show, we meet an artist who holds family at the centre of his practice, especially his mother. Hello there. On Radio National, this is The Art Show. I'm Namilla Benson. We're heading over to Western Australia on this episode to meet the artist Abdul Rahman Abdullah. He's best known for his sculptures and installations, which often feature animals and, you know, the standard variety of camels, snakes, kangaroos, pigs. They all pop up in his work. And Abdul Rahman's journey to becoming a professional artist is a really interesting one. It's a journey with a few twists and turns and even includes an unexpected stop-off working at the Perth Zoo. He's also just won a big art prize, which we'll hear more about shortly. Abdul Rahman, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? Going really well, thank you. But, you know, this is a weird time, as is the way with these bizarre COVID times. We're speaking with each other from our separate necks of the woods. So where are you joining us from? Um, I'm in my house, which is on a farm, which is in an area called Mundajong, which is south of Perth, which is in Western Australia, which is possibly one of the better places in the world to be right now, I think. (laughs) <laughs> so true. And, you know, I have to say, I didn't quite imagine that you'd be based out on a on a farm somewhere. So I'm wondering, do you actually farm as well? Me? No. It's my wife Anna's family farm. So they've been here for our kids, the uh, seventh generation on the same bit of land. But I've lived here since 2016 and I never grew up on a farm, but I live here now and I love it. Wouldn't want it any other way. Um, I help out every now and then. Um, but no, I'm a full-time artist and a dad. So, and you've you've actually built a studio, is that right? That that's on the farm. Yeah, when Anna and I moved here in 2016, well, Anna grew up here, but we were living together um, up in Perth, and we moved here in 2016 to get married, and we built a studio at the same time as we moved here, and that's where I spend my days now. It's about 50 meters behind the house, I think. And so me and Anna, who's also an artist, have just got half feet, wall in the middle, split it halfway, and that's our happy places. Ah, oh, and I love the sound of it. Can you describe the walk for us that you take each time you wander from the house up oh, to the studio? Commute. The daily commute. You know what? I love it. Every time I walk up, walk to the to the studio, it's um. It just makes me so happy. It fills me up. <laughs> it sounds so cheesy, but like I often like, you know, shout in happiness on the way to work, which is, um, I guess, one of the perks of the job. Um, I walk out the back door. I walk past the chicken coop. I wave to my pet goat um, across the lawn, and usually I can see some bulls in the back in the paddock behind the studio. There's an alpaca who gets around, and a couple of pet sheep who wander around. Um, guinea fowls. Some uh, rabbits, annoyingly. I can see four horses through the gap. Um, and then I arrive at my studio. Uh, uh, it's about 50 metres, but it's a hectic. Uh, sometimes there's traffic. That's a beautiful 50 metres, though. I would yeah, not be getting that view if I was at the ABC studio, let me tell you. Now, I need to ask you about Trevor the goat, who you spoke about so beautifully in a TEDx talk. Tell me, do you still pop out and have a bit of a chin wag with Trevor the goat? Well, Trevor was a lot cuter when he was a kid. A kid. Oh. <laughs> goats get grumpy, especially male goats. If you know that YouTube shows you kids, little goats, which are very cute, Female goats, which are very friendly, and then whenever male goats rock up, it's just them either screaming or headbutting. That's that's what Trevor's moved into that phase of his life. 
because she's just oh, no. It's pretty grumpy, but he still looks very handsome. I still, I still love him. But now that I've got babies, I've got actual children. He's just he's been retired from the social media. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it all sounds like, you know, very beautiful and chaotic, but also kind of picturesque and idyllic working and being creative like that on a farm. So tell me, is it? Is it great for creativity being there? I think so. It absolutely is. Like, I mean, I guess artists will always would understand, you know, you, especially a studio-based artist like, like myself, like, that space to work, the space to think and operate is like it's integral to, you know, to your success or to your, even to your mental well-being, to everything. You need that space to to do what you do. Um, and 90% of the time, unless artists are able to build their own space or, you know, work from home or own what they work in, which is, you know, the minority of artists, um, there's always hanging, you know, that threat of being booted out of your studio is always hanging over your head. That's been my experience and it's experience with so many people. You know, those regular discussions of where to where you gotta go next. Um and Perth has yes. been pretty good for studio spaces. It's not the same rental pressures as um Sydney especially or Melbourne. But having my own space, and this is the first time I've worked in a space where I'm not gonna get kicked out of. Uh oh, it's amazing. It really is. And I think any any artist would agree, like it just be able to switch that part of your brain off and go, I'm not going to get booted out of here, you know? <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, I imagine that would be a type of, I mean, it is kind of a, a mental labour and a stress, isn't it? Just sort of working out permanency for oh, ongoing yeah. space yeah, creating. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that you said, um, so you have not grown up on a farm. So I really want to get an understanding of your background. Where did you grow up? Um, well, I was born in Port Kembla, south of Sydney, but I left when I was three days old. So I really don't have a lot of connection to the place. And I came, my family moved to uh, to Perth when I was a baby, like three months old. And I grew up in Vic Park, which is sort of quite central in the city, in Perth my whole life. Um, I've lived in Melbourne for a year in 2010 when I went to VCA briefly. I uh, was too cold, a bit miserable, and I came back to Perth. For some sunshine. <laughs> but, hey, yeah, we've got sunshine now. Yeah. Don't spread rumours. <laughs> it won't last. <laughs> um, so in the family home, was it a creative upbringing? Were, were there lots of arts activities happening? Um, it wasn't, it wasn't, because we grew up quite, you know, we grew up practising Muslim, Muslim family, you know, my, and a lot of my Childhood was, you know, we went to the mosque. Everyone we surrounded ourselves with were part of that Muslim community. Well, not everyone. Like a big part of the landscape was that. And then, but at the same time, it was such a small minority, you know, group. To say it still is of Muslims in Perth. That you know, most of our friends then I went to school to you know just a normal public school were not Muslim. So it's sort of foot in both worlds. But yeah, we always just drew. We drew pictures and. My mum's such a maker. She even now, she you know, she does watercolours. She's a ceramics teacher. Um, she was and she's sewed her whole life. So she just made. So it was less that we we didn't really know about art. We went to the state gallery because it was free and it was fun. But um, we didn't know what art was. You know, art wasn't. We were way too working class to know that people, you know, art was a thing you could either do or people would own. We just didn't think about that. We just drew pictures and didn't have a TV. Yeah, yeah. Your younger brother, Abdul Abdullah, is also a very well-known artist in Australia. So your mum's creativity is very present in the DNA. (laughs) When when the both of you catch up, when you and your brother catch up, is it inevitably lots of arty convos that happen between the two of you? Arty convos, you know what? We talk endlessly (laughs) about art. But I don't, I don't know if you'd call them arty convos. <laughs> there's a lot of nuts and bolts, and uh, we're big allies. We really do support each other. We're like we're a team in that sense, and we like to talk to each other. We like to strategize, scheme, and plan. Talk about what we're doing, but also just talk about the state of things. Um, you don't need many people as sounding boards, and to get that real feedback from. But in fact, a few are the better. Um, so for me, it's my brother and my wife Anna. And a, and a few other people, um, um, just people like that who you might bounce an idea off and really listen to what they've got to say. And my brother's played that role since oh, really our whole lives. 
I'm quite a bit older than mm. him, but we've always had that um, that sort of relationship. Is being an artist something that you always wanted to do, say, even when you finished school? Well, yeah, I guess so. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a cartoonist because I thought if you drew pictures, that's sort of the only thing. That's what I recognised because it was in the papers, you know. Um, <laughs> but in high school, I went to a, a, an art focus. Schools, a public school here in Perth called Apple Cross, and they had an art program, which my younger brother also went through, and my niece just finished last year. But so we'd go every Saturday and just do art things. And my older brother went through art school while I was at high school, so I didn't have any long-term plans. It's nineties, nineties. We didn't. Foresight yeah. wasn't invented as a concept <laughs> for teenagers. Um, <laughs> But all I wanted to do was go to art school because it looked like so much fun and I would wag school a lot and hang out with my older brother at art school and I thought, this is the life. This is cool. This is what an adult is like. This is great. Can't wait. (laughs) So that was the only plan I ever had. Didn't quite work out exactly like that because it took me actually a long time to become an artist. But, um, you know, that... But I kind of love that (laughs) that you had a little distraction along the way because this is the one question I've wanted to ask you during this interview. How on earth did you end up working at the zoo? Because that that sounds like such a great gig. Well, yeah, it was... um, Well, I'll tell you just in the lead-up to it, I guess I went went to a few different art schools and always dropped out, never lasted more than a year. That was my... In the end, I went to five different art schools before I became an artist. Um, but then I ended up doing a little bit of graphic design, becoming like a freelance illustrator, um, which is a terrible way to make a living and spend most of my time labouring and uh, selling paint and all sorts of scrap metal, all sorts of crappy jobs. Um, all the side hustles. Oh, just you got to eat. <laughs> yes, <laughs> no one yeah, else gonna, that's like, right. Yeah, uh, 90s sucked too. It was just that was the 90s recession. Um, but then I ended up, yeah, being, becoming an illustrator and becoming a um, model maker, a commercial sculptor with a place called CDM Studio was here in Perth. Um, and I learned a lot there. I sort of transitioned from illustration and drawing to just making and sculpting. Uh, and so as a designer, I ended up the two sort of areas I specialised in were Christmas design, where I spent almost a decade designing Christmas displays in Perth and and in zoo design as well, where we designed animal habitats and then we built them, as, as long, along with like animal sculptures and sort of visitor interactives and entry statements and stuff like that. But, um, but it was the animal habitats that were a lot of fun. And to be honest, like well, I wasn't qualified in any way to do that uh, I could just draw we had good ideas and we um presented good tender documents I guess and got the jobs and then went shit now we got to do this yeah so we did <laughs> and so animals feature very prominently in your work so this seems an obvious question but uh, uh, what was a big lesson for you that you took away in that role in terms of understanding and relating to animals I don't know. I guess when you're doing that, because I really didn't know anything about the animals and that, every time I would you know, have a new sort of task or a problem, I would just research the animals and it wasn't, you know, it's not a hard thing. It's just a lot of Googling. And then I was in my late 20s and just, and I'm not like, I don't know much about animals. I'm not like a scientist by any stretch. But just like seeing them all as individuals or, you know, seeing going this individual animal, not just a parenti, it's this particular one. And just it's a bit of a shift in thinking and seeing animals as individual creatures. I guess that might have been something that sunk in. I never, you know, you sit there and go, I am learning a life lesson now, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. But you see that they've got very distinct personalities and because that's the thing. I guess we hmm. see one particular breed as an entire breed. But, yeah, people often say it with animals, they're like, no, 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 they're very distinct <laughs> with, with their personalities. Yes, Is that no, something I that you found? Yeah, you look out the window and see 50 kangaroos and they all seem pretty much the same to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure if you get to know them. <laughs> <laughs> so at what stage then did you think, okay, this has been great, but now, I really want to pursue art full-time? Well, I was, you know, for a good 10 or more years, 12 years sort of in between going to art school out of high school and then going back to art school, I'd always just stored away the idea of art as basically the best degree I never finished because I was, I knew that I was just building skills and processes and adding to my um, 
sort of capacities, I guess. And so when I finally decided to go back to art school and become an artist, I would just have a lot more to draw on. And, and during that time, me and my younger brother were living together and he went through art school sort of 2006 to eight, and we were living together and, you know, I was living vicariously through him, going to hang out with him at art school, you know. Um, um, and but when he finished in 2008 and his career started picking up, you know, and he's, he's had a great trajectory and I was sort of, we were very close throughout all of that and still are. Um, I just decided that it was time for me to go back. Uh, so in 2010, I went back and started first year again and then just ended the three years. First year in Melbourne at VCA, then come back to Perth, to Curtin. Um, yeah, and I've How done, was I, it heading back to uni as a mature age student? Uh, I've got my opinions on mature age students, but <laughs> um, it, it was great. Which are? I, what, I went from working like 80 hours a week to slaving because I would work, you know, during the day during these enclosures and it was hard labour and design work. At night I'd be doing, you know, all the design work during Christmas stuff. Went from about 70 or 80 hour weeks to art school. And VCA is pretty rigorous. They, they expect you to be there for about 30, 35 hours a week, which is a lot for much more than any other art school. But it was, it was just like, I loved it. Going from working your butt off to just hanging out talking about art all day with um, young, attractive people. <laughs> it's like, this is cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to talk about your practice now. Uh, you love to make these carved wooden sculptures of animals. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, it's. I love hearing about you, for instance, you know, working with the enclosures at the zoo. And even today, animals still feature in your work. So why is it? What, what's the magic of animals for you? I don't know, it's a funny thing because they've just become my visual language is so based on animals now. And like I when I grew up we had a pet cat, like a mangy little cat. We weren't in the middle of the city, we didn't animals weren't part of my world that much. Now they are. I just um that's where life has sort of taken me. I live on a farm, <laughs> there's a lot of cows and a lot of everything here. But the way that and, and the animals I usually make and sort of talk about in my work are very ordinary, you know, cats, dogs, birds, crows kangaroos, sheep, you know, these they're just very familiar. A lot of them were very sort of urban, you know, wild and domestic at the same time. That's one of the other things I like about, you know, like a cat or a crow. It's so it's in your backyard, but it's wild. A cat is never quite domesticated. They're, but even yes. a dog is like a little savage as well as being, you know, a fluff ball at your feet. But the way that I can anthropomorphize an animal and impose a sort of a human cultural context or a human relationship on the idea of an animal, but at the same time, you know, working quite realistically and at a one-to-one scale for audiences, when they encounter the work, they've already bring, you know, this um, bucket load of their own mythology or their own, um, you know, their own stories and narratives about these same animals, you know, a cat or a crow or a dog or that. Everyone's got their own relationship already. And so it sort of gives people an access point or a sense of ownership in a way that... uh, and it disarms people too because, like, nobody, you can't hate a baby camel, for example, and then you sort of you know, draw people into a work and then you can, they can find out more and let my idea unfold or not, you know. A lot of the time people, you know, bring what they bring to the work and that's enough for them and that's fine too. But I always want to give them more so they can find out more. There's always a story or an idea or something behind that as well, which might not be that obvious necessarily, yeah. That's the great thing about art, though, isn't it? Is that everyone kind of seeks relatability in some form or another. And I think you're right. I think oftentimes we will kind of impose our own experiences and narratives upon what it is that we're looking at. And, And you create these wooden sculptures, which seems like incredibly physical work because the animals are often life-size. And I'm wondering if there's a common starting place with carving wood. Like, for example, do you just start to shave a bit from the middle and go from there? What's the beginning of that process look like for you? The beginning of that, the very beginning of that process is finding good reference material, finding either pictures or you know, even little models or like if I can get went taxi derby, that's ideal. Um, yeah, good reference is very helpful. Now, well, all the wood comes in big beams, so you've got to measure it up, chop it up, laminate it together, clamp up a big block or whatever that is. That's the actual starting point. And then it's my chainsaw, my trusty chainsaw. 
start hacking away. Try not to um, make mistakes. If you do, try not to make them too big. <laughs> 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 um, a lot of, lot of just sort of lots of little guesses. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it is very physical work, but I love that part. It's part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask you about one of your works called Pretty Beach. Uh, yeah. This is a work that features 11 carved wooden stingrays which you've placed in formation on the floor and above the rays is this really exquisite installation of hanging crystals that that kind of hover uh, suspended over the rays and from certain angles they almost look to me like it's the twinkling landscape of yeah. distant city lights. That, that's how I see it. But talk us through what this work Pretty Beach is about. Okay, Pretty Beach. Yeah, that is sort of um, up till now it's been perhaps my biggest work and it was, I made it for the National at the MCA in Sydney last year, so beginning of 2019 I showed that. Um, yeah, it is. It's, it's these 11 stingrays. They're based on the estuary stingrays, which are very common to the east coast of, uh, of Australia and they're quite large and the ones I've made are quite like, about a metre across and two metres long from nose to the tip of the tail um yeah and it was, as you described it's also got a soundtrack of rain falling on water so those the crystals dropped they're on these hanging on those little ball chains two little balls in a big a chain for about three to five meter drop on this crystals at the end which to me describe rain falling on water and the stingrays are swimming swimming beneath that and pretty beach that name it is it's a work about my grandpa who lived in a place called Pretty Beach, which is in Wagstaff on the central coast of New South Wales. Um, I made the work to show in 2009, which was a 10-year anniversary of when he took his own life at his place in Pretty Beach. Um, he he was like, he was suffering from a whole buffet of cancers, he was extremely diabetic and all this sort of life hadn't treated him well and a uh, chain, chain smoker and a daily drinker, his um his body was giving up on him so he took his own life but it, and at the time it was um it was really sad but it was not tragic in this in the sense of you know same sense of a young person taking their own life something like that because it's the way he'd always lived he's been such an independent person and I, I think he was looking at losing his mobility or mo- possibly losing his legs to diabetes so he chose to to end it you know he'd reached a threshold and as his whole family, we really kind of understood that and it was very sad but very logical and it made perfect sense in like the way he'd always lived his life as you know, an incredibly independent person. And so that was the context of the work. But the actual stingrays in the rain, my, one of my most vivid memories of going to visit him at Pretty Beach was uh, he had a jetty out the front of his house, lived in this um, sort of rambling um, fibro house right on the bay and at high tide the water would come up under the house and under the jetty and I remember as a kid oh. out on the jetty watching the stingrays swinging around underneath your feet under the jetty and it's like you know, that proximity to nature that you know basically a, a wild animal it's, like, it's just fascinating even as an adult it's fascinating <sighs> to be that close like you see out of the bay and the rain just coming in you can watch the rain coming in it's the same now on the farm you can just see it coming in like a curtain when you when you can see long sort of views like that um, watched the rain coming in and just sort of it took the you know the hits the water it just took the stingrays away from view but they just swam on and made no difference to the stingrays they existed they were just like I couldn't I couldn't experience I couldn't see them in the same um, anymore but they just continued to on and so I sort of took that as a that passage that memory as a like maybe a metaphor or a way of describing how I wanted to feel about granddad sort of he just he'd been taken away but he continues on just in a way that you know we can't be a part of I guess yeah um yeah so that that's how I wanted to talk about his passing and how I wanted to to memorialize in a way that's not like you know I wanted to make it beautiful yeah it is very, very beautiful, but it's also, I mean, you having explained the story behind it now, I mean, that's a that's a deeply personal work as well, you know, addressing yeah. these really huge themes of, of death and loss. So making that work, I mean, were there times when it felt emotionally draining or for you, was the process healing? I don't know. It's a hard one because when you're in the midst of, I mean, it was about... I think four or five months where I was just carving stingrays quite repetitively. Um, and so you've got a bit of a, you know, 
you got an end game in mind. You I mean I I won't see the work until it's finished. So I'm assuming that it's going to work, and in the end, it did. Yeah. Um, it's funny because it's it's hard work and it's hard labour, and you set yourself daily goals and you sort of carry it through, and you got deadlines. So it's only really at the beginning when you're thinking about the work, and when the end when you walk in and you know to the work, where you really sort of let yourself sit back and think about why you made this work. And I guess it wasn't really the work doesn't make me sad. It was just other things that I mean. I really like that my my family all loved the work, and you know they they all really appreciated that. Now I've got a lot of family in Sydney who you know he was their granddad too. You know I guess it's a way of it's one step removed from you know the actuality of what happened and sure what that made me sense. sad is like when you know when they found him he had uh, letters that we'd sent him as a kid and like you know photographs of us there he had them all with him. And oh, that, and, gosh. I mean, I wouldn't mm. sort of put that into a work, but that, I mean, yeah, a bit teary now. I think, you know, yeah. that's a more personal thing that you wouldn't necessarily put in a, on a public stage. But um, I think it's one of the beautiful things of visual art or any form of art, really, is how much of the creator's personal story goes into particular works. But broadly yeah. speaking, what ideas guide you when you're creating work? What are what are the big themes that uh, seem to embed themselves in your work? Uh, I guess for me, the biggest sort of over, you know, the theme running throughout nearly most, not everything, but nearly everything I do is. So it's about family in some way and that family and familial space, whether that's domestic space or other ways of, you know, describing familial space. That might be, you know, like a community or communities within communities or how people find family. But a lot of the time it is quite literally about family, about members of my family, about my siblings and my parents. And at the same time that can become about everybody's parents or everybody's siblings. I think that those relationships are so fundamental to the way we sort of, you know, experience the world or the way we see ourselves in the world and how we it defines so much about us. It's always nice to sit there and think about it and lean into that. And, I mean, I'm pretty very subjective about these things. I don't want to focus on their, on their shitty things about family. I want, to, you know, I want the beautiful <laughs> things about family because, for me, course, that's my experience yeah. of family. And I know not everyone has that, but I... We have a very loving, tight-knit family and now I've got, you know, got my own family and it sort of becomes even more important. But, yeah, that's the theme. If there was one word, it'd just be family. You've actually just won the Australian Muslim Artists Art Prize. So I didn't say congratulations to you. So huge (laughs) congratulations for that. You won for a work that features three wooden carved plants, the kind that people like to keep in their houses, you know, with those deep green waxy leaves, particularly during this pandemic, I have to say. (laughs) Even my home is now filled with lots of plant babies. So (laughs) tell us what that work is about. It's a nice to lead into it. It's about my mum. <laughs> there's a few. Man, I've made a few works which are sort of specifically about her. But this one, yeah. Does she the, love that? She must love that. She does. She finds it quite amusing as well. She, she does love it. You know, she does appreciate it. But she's, when I told her that I'd won and this was the work and I showed her, you know, the statement I'd made, it was all about how much I love my mum. And she's like, why do you want to, you know, elevate me like that? And it's like, it's like why shouldn't I, mum? I'm going to tell the world. It's so true, yeah. The work is called Transplants and it's sort of my mum came from, moved from Malaysia to Australia in 1971 Um, and it was a massive culture shock for her and she's she's been here for like 50 odd years, almost 50 years now. Um, And it was, to me it was that idea of something coming from elsewhere and just being able to thrive in spite of a lot of things, and Australia wasn't a fun place for an Asian woman. It's not necessarily now, let alone, you know, in 1971. That's right. Um, mm. And the three plants I've picked, it's a Sansevieria, Monstera, and a Euphorbia. Uh, so it's sort of cactus, and then there's the big Monstera, and they're, they're kind of quite hip plants now. Um, they but, really are, yes. And putting them in these sort of very modernist-looking concrete pots, which are, they're not concrete, they're turned wood. It's all a lie. <laughs> yeah, but it's sort of sprayed up to look like concrete. <laughs> So they look quite hip. They look quite, you know, some you know, insta, insta-friendly kind of things. But those plants all come from different areas of the global south too and they've been brought here for their sort of exotic values and they've thrived here for various reasons. But, I mean, I guess where they came from when they're from like um, 
Africa, South Asia, and Central America, I think. Each, each of the three different ones. But they're so common, I guess. We we feel a real sense of ownership. But they're so urban, you know. They're like, they're apartment plants. They're indoor now, you know. Yeah, they're, all they're Insta-ready. Plants. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, they are. Um, it's a triple whammy. Yeah. You get a muse- little museum show and then you get the prize money and then you get to be a part of a collection too. So it was like... Yeah. And you get to shout out your mama as well. I'm always doing that. <laughs> <laughs> having won the Australian Muslim Artists Art Prize, I'm wondering, does religion feature much in your work? Yeah, that, uh, being like uh, the idea of being a Muslim is inseparable to who I am. It's part of a big part of my identity. Um, well, I don't know what a typical Muslim is, but I'm definitely not a typical Muslim, I guess. It's played such a big role in, yeah, again, the way I see the world, like, you know, the the family life I grew up in, the relations I knew, the way I related to adults and children and families growing up especially. Sort of cultural aspects of that comes through in quite a lot of my work. But I don't make work about being a Muslim. I don't make religious artwork in that. Just sometimes it touches on that as as a part of the world, I guess, as a part of my world, but I don't want to... You know, I'm not presenting any rights or wrongs and I'm sort of not have no yeah. interest in, in that or any sort of dogmatic approach. It's sort of just the many different, you know, this whole spectrum or spectacle of different truths that people live with, I guess, often contradictory, often not. You know, we just, we live with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Haven't burnt up and gone to hell yet. So. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting that you use the term typical Muslim. So I don't know what that is, but. Yeah. <laughs> Right, okay. Um, so often, you know, the idea of being a Muslim is presented as this big brown blob somewhere else. But is, the reality is there's 1.6 billion Muslims. It covers such a vast belt of the world. <laughs> yes, it, it really does. And I think, um, yeah, I, I'm sure that Westerners would have this particular lens on what it would mean to be, a, you know, so-called typically Muslim. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. yeah. You'd be bearded, you'd be angry. You'd... <laughs> you're, you're the bad guy. <laughs> you're the bad guy in the movie. <laughs> it's like... Um, You're now a significant figure in the Australian arts community and I wonder how much of your success in the arts you attribute to your own talent um, and how much you attribute to luck. Oh, ain't no luck in art. Come on, it's hard bloody work. Also, no, no, no talent in art either. Also hard work. <laughs> and I'm not a big believer in either of them. I think you've got to just work your ass off. Being an artist is like all the best artists I know, they work hard and they're all smart, yeah. articulate, organised people who work hard. So the idea of an artist being sort of head in the clouds and, um, you know, a bit lazy, it just doesn't really, it doesn't exist. Those mm-hmm. artists don't last. Everyone is sort of very pragmatic, very hardworking and just it's a hustle. Um you know, and what you do in the studio, what you do creatively, is only one part of it. You know? The rest of it is running yourself as a as a as a small business. You know, just functioning as a you know, financial entity. All that shit which you don't get taught at art school, you got to yes. learn in the real world. That's such a big part. You just can't let any of that slide. You got to be sort of planned two years in advance, and you know, and stick to these things. Otherwise, you just you people run out of steam. You know, they don't last. Yeah. I guess my final question I wanted to ask you is, is what's a piece of advice you'd offer to younger and emerging artists that you wish someone had said to you earlier on? That's a hard one. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but for a, a new artist or, you know, a fresh graduate, is just to throw, I mean, it sounds really bad now because I, I say go to the work. Because, you know, when I, I always travelled a lot up until this year. You know, probably like once a month I would be somewhere else, you know, for most of the time I've been an artist the last eight years. But especially if you live out of the main centres like Perth, or that, you, go, you go to the art, make sure you're there, go see it, you know, travel and then see if you can be a part of this world, I guess. Yeah, and just schedule your life. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Abdul Rahman, it's been so great speaking with you. Thank you. Oh, no worries. Thank you so much. <laughs> Abdul Rahman Abdullah is an artist from Western Australia. And as you heard, he's just won the 2020 Australian Muslim Artists Art Prize. And you can head to the Art Show website for more information on his work. Now, Abdul Rahman has said that he thinks about his relationship to religion kind of like the rap artist Ice Cube does, where Ice Cube refers to himself as a natural Muslim. So having mentioned Ice Cube, let's take in one of my favourite tracks from nearly three decades ago. It was a good day. Just waking up in the morning, gotta thank God. I don't know, but today seems kind of odd. No barking from the dog, no small. And mama cooked the breakfast with no heart. I got my grub on, but didn't dig out. Finally got a call from a girl I want to dig out. Now, one of the great joys of this gig is getting to hear from you, our listeners. John wrote in after hearing my call out for your thoughts on what makes something good art. And he writes... I'm supposed to submit my idea on good or bad art via the voice app, but because of my MND, I have no speech. I maintain as an artist, designer and former lecturer that there is no bad art, just inauthentic art, with students and artists, irrespective of whether I like their artwork or not, I try to ascertain that the relationship between the artist and their work is authentic not pretentious. Very interesting. Thanks so much for getting in touch, John. It's great to hear your thoughts. Sarah also wrote in after hearing my conversation with Arij Noor, co-founder of the African Arts Collective, Still Nomads. And Sarah writes... I want to say how much I enjoyed the most recent episode with Areej Nord of Still Nomads. The conversation between Namilla and Areej around the whiteness of the art world in Australia and Areej's words describing the unusual experience of living in Australia as an artist who is visibly racialized was crucial listening for anyone wanting to understand how the Black Lives Matter movement translates to the context of the Australian art world. Sarah, thank you so much for uh, your email. I so appreciate your feedback. And like Sarah and John, you too can drop me a line anytime or send me a voice memo with your thoughts on the show. And you can just Email us at artsonrn at abc.net.au. That's artsonrn at abc.net.au. You're listening to The Art Show with Namilla Benson. During this pandemic, many of us are very much laying low, unable to connect with loved ones and even neighbours. In fact, the only visitor I get these days knocking on my front door is the mailman. So how would you go if someone randomly knocked on your door and offered to take your household's portrait. Well, my guest photographer, Manda Ford, knows all about this because during the first round of COVID restrictions in Victoria, that's exactly what she did. Manda Ford, hello. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. Going really well, thank you. And and looking forward to talking this pandemic and photography. I, I want you to tell us, though, about your photography practice prior to the pandemic. Okay, um... Photography for me is my passion project. I've been photographing for over 20 years. Um, that makes me feel really old, but <laughs> um, I've always gravitated towards people. So I started off doing tourist photography up in far north Queensland for the boats that went over to Green Island. Um, yeah, very random. That's random. <laughs> I got approached by the guy who owned the company up there and he just really liked my people skills because I used to work as a food and beverage attendant on Green Island. So he would see me daily and um, he's like, I think you'd be a really good photographer. And I was like, I've never picked up a camera in my life. And he's like, I can teach you. And back in those days. What do you think he saw in you where he thought that you'd be good, uh, a good photographer? What was it, do you think, about your people skills? People in my jam, I love 
random conversation and I'm, I'm an extrovert. I'm not shy. I will talk to anyone and everyone. <laughs> so I think they used to just see me rocking it because I was a worker. Um, we got to hop on the boat first, but I'd be interacting with the Japanese tourists, the German tourists, the locals, um, and the kids. I always gravita- uh, gravitated towards the little tourist kids because they're just so damn cute. And I love, mm. I love kids. Um, It's interesting that you say, uh, you know, you'll talk to anyone and everyone, but I'm wondering, because this pandemic is hectic, right? So how did things change for you when we first went into isolation? Oh, I didn't know how to cope and either did my little girl, like we're so social and extroverted that being locked in within our four walls and our little garden was a little bit intense for us. And I was feeling rather flat and I needed to fill my cup and I needed to fill her cup. So I was like, how about, how about we just take pe- um, pictures of the people on our street? You can scoot behind me and, and we'll keep our distance. But do you, want, do you want to do that with me? And she's up for anything. So she hopped on her little scooter and we started at the top of our street because I figured where else to start than the street and the community that we live amongst. So I'm wondering, what was the creative brief you gave your neighbours? How did you sell it to them? Well, basically, I knocked on the door and then I stepped back to keep my social distance directive from the government. And I, look, I was dressed in my cons, a top knot and my overalls because I live in my overalls. So I wasn't like dressed up professionally or anything. I knocked on their door and I was just like, hey, I'm Amanda. I live at such and such a number on this street and I'm a photographer I'm really in a bit of a um, creative funk right now and I just want to give back. So I'm here to take your portrait. It's not going to cost you anything, but it's a one-time only knock. And a lot of them said yes. I had maybe eight to ten no's and it's a pretty big street I live on. Mm. Um, But the portraits were as you were. Like there was no time for them to go back and put lippy on or do their hair or change their outfits. (laughs) It was... I'm taking a really raw and real moment for you right now so you can look back on this and just go, hey, I made it through. Um, And basically I didn't ask for any money. It wasn't a forward sell for me. I basically probably took five captures to make sure I got a um, picture for them, like a capture for them. At least one winner in there. and. Talk me through, because I find it so interesting about how you say uh, it's about giving back to your community. So, you know, because it's literally the term that we use is taking photos. Explain to us what that transaction is, Manda. What do you see that you're giving back to your community? Um, A memory, a sense of nostalgia, a reflection of a moment in time. Um, Look, I'm the first to not want to have photos of myself taken but I understand that my daughter loves me for who I am in this moment it doesn't matter if I haven't got makeup on it doesn't matter if I haven't washed my hair in four days she will come to me every morning with unconditional love because I'm her mum and she loves what she sees and I think a lot of us forget that it's not about us it's actually about our kids looking back like when it's their time to be adults and go, oh, mum, remember when you had that really terrible haircut? Oh, how funny. Like, it's just and it's just a crazy time as well. So yeah. it's, is it part of documenting? Is, is that what you wanted to capture through this pandemic portrait project? Look, it really is. I, I lost my dad a couple of years ago and my mum always carried around a Kodak 120 film instant camera in her handbag. And if she hadn't done that, we wouldn't have had as many random memories to look back on with such love and laughter and showcase at this celebration of life. We forget about taking photos in a moment. We're all caught up on our phone and not developing. So I'm hoping that once I've um, given this portrait to the people in their emails, that they are printing it off and having an actual copy to go, oh, my God, I didn't wash my hair and I've got my Ugg boots on. 
And it's so interesting that you say that because I completely relate, certainly as a parent, uh, and my partner is also a photographer, but we actually don't have many family portraits at all. And you randomly rolled up to our place uh, on the weekend and took our portrait. That's actually the third portrait. My eldest is now eight. And it's kind of, um, it was a revelation to me that we don't do enough of these family moments together because it's usually my partner on the other side of the camera lens. But also too, as you say, just the documentation thing, my kids don't have a lot of photos to look back on and you captured us in all our chaotic, <laughs> messy glory. I mean, I think we were, yeah, we were in the garden, we were sweeping out the front, doing all of that kind of stuff. And then I saw your car and I was like, Oh, no. Yeah, well, that's um, the whole idea of the portrait. I didn't give anyone else any notice, so why would I say to you, hey, I'm just going to drop around for five minutes? I had to, I had to you know, it, it's just, yeah, well. there were tantrums. It was the full full load, but you captured something so beautiful and our family actually really loved the photo. So thank you for that oh, because pleasure. really I, I don't even know when the next photo, the last time we had a family portrait together was six years ago, actually. Wow. So. <laughs> Wow. But tell me how people responded then uh, when, when they saw the photos that you'd taken of their household. Oh, I got so many beautiful feedback emails, like, thanks so much, Amanda. We didn't think we'd want to have this done, but what a time to look back on. I think overall um, the response was pretty positive. Look, there are two that I have in my um, file ready to print because two of two or three, actually, I think it's three, um, two ladies and one gentleman on my street. They are that old that they don't have email. So I'm going to print them a copy of their pandemic portrait and deliver it to them. Were there any photos that were kind of difficult to capture or perhaps even where there was a bit of sadness that was uh, captured within those images? Look, there was. There was one guy that lives on the street and he lives with his brother, but his brother was in hospital because he just developed cancer and he couldn't be there. But I think the benefit of me taking his portrait and his rubbish bins are in the picture and he's smiling, but he really welcomed the chat and that's something that I really underestimated. I didn't, I thought it'd just be like a five minute knock, take the portrait, grab their email address, move on to the next house. But I underestimated everyone's need for conversation and interaction. And I was really grateful that I could give him 15 minutes of my time so he felt like he could talk to somebody because the person he normally talks to was not there for him because he was in hospital and he was unable to visit. So mm -hmm. I, although that I was just taking a picture to fill my cup and help get me out of my, my funk and get back my creative juices, I met so many cool cats on my street and within my community that I now have this street that Lola and I walk down and they will drive past in their car and pick their horn if we're out the front watering the garden. And I love that because my mum and my nana always taught me to make sure that you know your neighbours because you never know when you're going to need a cup of sugar or somebody to bring your mail in. And I mm. think I've done them both proud. Um, by keeping that sense of community and instilling it in my daughter. Yeah, because that's what I was going to ask you. What do you think the bigger lesson was that your daughter would have gotten from accompanying you uh, whilst doing these portraits? That acts of kindness are so important. They're not just for you. Like being kind doesn't just make, it's not just better for you. It's actually better for everyone because you don't know if someone's having a down day or you know, they've had no one to speak to for a couple of weeks and you're the first conversation because they don't have email and they don't know how to online shop. So you could yeah. be the outlet that they needed that you didn't know. So just small acts of kindness can go such a long way. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. so great. And generally speaking, when it comes to, because I think what it is uh, that you're doing, I'd almost call you like a social photographer with what you've captured within the community, but getting out and about on the street, are there any um, street photographers that you really admire? Oh, not, no, no one comes off the top. Like, I suppose if you think about these pandemic portraits, there's lots of photographers 
doing them in some form because all of us wanted a creative outlet. Some, I know one lady that did it in Adelaide and she charged $50, but all that money went to food bank. So she didn't take any money. She did it to raise money for a prop, like a not-for-profit. Um, Why was it important for you then, Amanda, not to charge for your service and, and I guess your expertise as a photographer? I'm a single parent, so I understand um, the need to keep purse strings tight and live within your means. And unfortunately for some people out there, photography is just not a luxury that they can afford, but they don't necessarily not want They They do want it. They just they can't put it into their budget. So if I could do something for them in this time, then I thought it was just a, a really beautiful idea to do. Well, what do you reckon it is about kind of capturing people uh, maybe off guard or just, you know, not quite as polished before they stand in front of a camera um, as opposed to, you know, on, on online social media, everyone is incredibly polished and they are dressed up to the nines and makeup is on fleek, all that kind of stuff. What is it, do you reckon, that... that uh, is the magic in in just catching people as they are? I think everyone is beautiful just the way that they are. I don't use Photoshop to tweak someone's tooth colour or to make their cheeks slimmer. I don't do any post-editing in that aspect in Photoshop. I put film filters and um, do a slight bit of editing in my imagery, but I'm not a tweaker of perfection because I think people – are beautiful just the way they are. That's the way you were born and you should celebrate you for you. So from Green Island to taking uh, these pandemic portraits, I mean, all those years, Amanda, what is it that uh, keeps you doing what you're doing? What do you love most about photography? I love capturing memories. I love instilling a sense of nostalgia and... I just think if we don't integrate and get to know our community, we could be living a very lonely life and photos and conversations just bring people together and a photo speaks a thousand words. So you have this one picture of these pandemic portraits, just one image. Imagine in 10 years' time or 20 years' time that they pull this picture out or they find it and they're just like, oh, Remember when? And there's a whole new conversation that's going to open up. So I love the fact that my images can open up conversations. Hey, Amanda, thanks so much for joining us on The Art Show. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Melbourne-based photographer Amanda Ford, who's been chatting about her Pandemic Portraits project, which she kicked off in April when Melbourne first went into COVID lockdown. And those photographs are on Amanda's Instagram page. It's called Fam Bams by Amanda, which you can find by heading to the Art Show website. And that's it for the show. My thanks to producers Rosa Ellen and Anna Taylor and the incredible RN technical operations team for their support. Don't forget to subscribe to The Art Show podcast so you will never miss an episode. And do leave us a comment because it helps us continue growing our visual arts community. I'm Namilla Benson. I'll catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.